Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. In this, our first episode for 2020, we'll take stock of a tumultuous summer of bushfires and climate wars, battles over Australia Day, and now coronavirus, our latest mass hysterical event, which not even a one-party state can control. That's China I'm talking about, not Australia. Don't forget, (laughs) Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, uh, please do go to ipa.org.au to find out how you can support this wonderful organisation, our research and this podcast. And as always, we'll close with our books and culture segment. Uh, Today we're talking about a new book on whether our cities can cope with rising populations, an old classic by the late, great Sir Roger Scruton, a former guest of the IPA, uh, the Brad Pitt movie Ad Astra, and also the contemporary novel of a marriage breakdown and something or other called Fleischman is in Trouble, one of those great New York books that Chris Berg will talk about. That was Fleischman, not Flashman, for fans of George MacDonald Fraser. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Time now to introduce our panellists. First up, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott, and happy January to you. Uh, happy January, happy 2020. <laughs> um, happy Stra- belated Australia Day, yep. Dr Bella De Brera. Yes, thank you. A few days ago, but we, we're still basking in its glory. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We are. Go Australia. <laughs> we, we love Australia. And, of course, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you back on the show. Yes, Australia Day. That's right. So um, uh, (laughs) attentive listeners will know that Australia Day was once again held on the 26th of January this year um, uh, against the uh, wishes of a um, fairly large Australia Day protest march, um, marching under the banner of the pay the rent. There were tens of thousands of people in um, definitely Melbourne and Sydney and other major capital cities. Um, uh, Pay the rent, for those who don't know, is um, actually an argument for a form of reparations, in fact, they're specifically calling for a land tax scheme on people who own property, who uh, Australians who own property would then pay rent to the traditional owners of the land. Um, Australia Day seems to be getting more and more um, uh, prominently divisive. I'm not sure whether it's um, divisive in the general population, but that's the research that you've been doing, Bella. So why don't you take us through um, how Australians think uh, outside, outside the tens of thousands marching in the streets? I think they think like Ash Barty, who was asked on court, actually in, in the press conference afterwards, what she thought about the protest. And she said, to be honest, I didn't even know it was happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you, Ash. So I think, I think she represents what we find every year in the polls, which is the vast majority are proud to be Australian and they love Australia Day. 71% this year, 75% last year, 71% the year before that. And I think 70% the year before that. So it stays in the in, in the majority s- consistently every year. But, but I think you're right. There is that that the, the the minority have to sort of take the they have to take their argument to an extreme every year. So this year it was sort of demanding the the reparations. They didn't do that. They didn't pull that stunt last year. Um, the polls reflect what most Australians believe about Australia and how they think about themselves. A- Andrew, how should we think about the, um, uh, the, the this apparent disconnect, uh, increasingly loud voice for change the date or pay the rent or what have you? Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think you're right that it's kind of seems to have um, accelerated somewhat. Um, Certainly in the last year. couple of years. Um, and I think with this pay the rent idea um, now being attached to it, well, we're, well, it's not going to be enough. It's not enough just to to say that the 26th of January is the right day to have Australia Day simply because it is the day that we currently have it. So it's not 
defending the status quo as the status quo. There should be um, an attempt to um, affirm why 26th of Australia is a good day to have it, uh, beyond the fact that it's extremely convenient to have a public holiday at that time of the year, <laughs> um, which, again, is not necessarily going to be an argument that will persuade this, this growing uh, minority of people who, who feel alienated from the day. Um, I think the, the best way of thinking about it, um, and I have, I have put some thought into this, I haven't um, simply dismissed the, the protests out of hand because I do think that the purpose of national holidays really is supposed to be unifying. Um, and if some people are saying we really cannot get over this to, to join in the celebration, I think that's worth paying attention to. Um, but I think the framing of it as Invasion Day, um, has, which has been sort of the thing that's driven this, is obviously a tendentious framing, but it also ignores the fact that 26th of January is, for better or worse, it is the day that um, the people who make up the Commonwealth of Australia, which is the thing that we're celebrating, um, came together on the island. That's, that is the historical reality. And the truth is that um, moving, you know, moving forward as a country together, um, that will always be the moment where um, that became a necessity, right, for us to start sharing institutions hmm. and to find a way to live together. I, I, I reckon there's sort of two tensions here. That the um, that we haven't quite solved. There, there's some people who think that January 26 is the day that just needs to be changed. So let's say we put it on January the 27th or May 8, Mate Day, as some people have argued, um, slightly tongue in cheek. But you know, let's say you move it to another general day, and then that would um, uh, deal with people who have specific objections to that specific date. But to your point. Um, the fundamental critique of January the 26th strikes me as as quite wrong because what happened on January 26th does, did not inevitably mean the bad things that might have happened to Indigenous people afterwards. And, in fact, I've got in front of me an account of the first fleet landing. So precisely what happened on January 26th? Well, they debarked at Sydney Cove um, in Port Jackson, New South Wales. In the, and I'm going to quote from Arthur Phillips' account. In the evening of the 26th, the colours were displayed on shore and the governor, with several of his principal officers and others, assembled around the flag, drank to the king's health and success of the settlement. Hurrah. There was so so there was no violence there. Mm. There was no um, uh, obvious interaction with the indigenous population. Maybe it happened and we don't know about, it, but certainly on January 26th, it was a peaceful with, landing and a peaceful settlement. With the greatest of respect to yourself and yep. Mr. Bushnell, I, I don't think you actually heard what Bella said. <laughs> I, I, I think you're way overthinking this. As as Ash Barty said, as Bella said, you know, the, the vast majority of Australians are not passing Australia Day, analysing it in these senses. Um, status quo, maybe it's under-theorised, but it's not a bad place to start for most people. And, and, and I actually, I don't think there's a large and growing movement. The, the polls that Bella's been commissioning um, for the Institute of Public Affairs over the past uh, couple of years, if anything, shows a solidifying of support for just leaving things the way they are and continuing to celebrate the nation. And ironically, what's underneath all this, we're actually reaching an accommodation whether they want to admit it or not. If you change the date away from Australia Day, then there's no particular reason to acknowledge 
um, the heritage of the Indigenous peoples and uh, both the, uh, the good things and the bad things that flowed from the colonisation of this country. It actually has created a platform for people to put the focus on, uh, call it dispossession, uh, uh, colonisation, whatever. If it was some other date, that, that wouldn't be relevant. So we, we're now actually almost in this yin and yang situation where those protests are just as much part of the tradition of Australia mm. Day. Well, perhaps growing is the wrong word, but like inten- intensification Well, that's, that's what I was saying. I mean, every year they'd have to do something a little bit more extreme than they did yeah. last year. They and didn't I, have this pay the rent yeah. last year. because I think, I think what Scott gets out there is, is right, that if you change the date then, well, I would say, I would say, I would give it a negative frame. I'd say if you change the date, then the debates won't go away um, because the argument will still be, well, how can we celebrate Australia on whatever date? You know, so I don't think that um, simply changing the date, um, again, will be a a solution to the the underlying problem. And again, that's why I think that perhaps, um, even though most people, of course, most people don't engage in this at all, um, but... I think that that notwithstanding, I think there is room to, for uh, uh, to tell a positive story about January 26th um, that perhaps hasn't really been made. And I think if it can be made, then I think that that is the, the, the only thing that is going to, over the long term, um, start to assuage people, is if people can come to see the day as representing something different from how um, at least some people mm. currently see it. But, but Scott, you haven't, you haven't actually addressed the the main challenge which Andrew raised just before, which is, okay, so there is, uh, let's say there's 30% of people and 70% of people, 30% of people oppose Australia No, Day it's not 30%, it's about, it's 11%. Okay, 11%. You've got the ones in the middle who don't care who would, we're not going to be out in the streets protesting. Exactly. Even if it's 11%, 10% of people, um, uh, a tenth of Australia has some really serious issues with precisely... Um, uh, what Andrew has described as a day that's meant to demonstrate unity. Is that a problem? No, no, because, well, there's 10% of people are going to be opposed to everything and, 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 and God bless them, this is a democracy. But it's like, um, you know, uh, we might get to Tanya Plibersek talking about the pledge. Uh, as possibly the only member of the panel old enough to remember when we still used to pledge allegiance to the Queen um, <laughs> in our pri- primary school yards as, as the Australian flag was raised. You know, there were, used to be a tremendous upset around that, you know, fancy declaring allegiance to this foreign monarch and, and referencing God. Um, and isn't that a terrible thing? So that was a huge argument. And then, you know, Keating, of course, changed the, the pledge uh, and the Queen doesn't get a Guernsey anymore. <laughs> well, so, there's, yeah. so there's always this level of disaffection. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in terms of uh, in, invented traditions, and we are inventing a tradition, the Hawke government was the first to really get around Australia Day. Um, and I know it can be critiqued. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm famously edited a, a volume of work on invented traditions. Uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, Lord Dacre talked about the... Um, uh, the kilts of Scotland, it's all made up, it's all made up. Well, I don't care if it's made up. It's our national story. And if we have to double down on it and enrich that story even more so that it does have even more appeal, I'm all for it. And I, and I think we, we're we actually enriching it with the, the stories of uh, in, in what it meant for the Indigenous Australians. That well, can be just as much part of the, the narrative as any, everything else. And well, I think, well, yeah, sorry, sorry but there's, that, there's also the, the, the question that we asked about are you proud to be Australian, which is, which is, which is related to Australia Day. And 85% say they are proud to be Australian. Only 5% said they weren't. So 
it doesn't so I still think that that there is not this massive disaffection and hatred of Australia that and and, and unhappy people walking around on Australia Day that that that, that you would get that, from that the media. You would get from yeah. the media. I yeah. really don't think there is. Uh, so, Scott, you, you raised Tanya Plibersek, so we should talk about that. So Tanya Plibersek gave a, and she's the shadow education, I think, um, uh, gave a speech on patriotism to the citizenship ceremony that she hosted at the Sydney Opera House because she's the member of Sydney. And if you're the member of Sydney, you get to speak at the Sydney <laughs> Opera cool, House yes. when yep. you do the sort of bog standard um, MP duties, where she reflected on the citizenship pledge. Um, uh, the Citizenship Pledge, and feel free to join in in chorus as I read this out to you, everyone. Uh, it says, from this time forward, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people. Whose, whose dem democratic who beliefs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. Of course, um, if you uh, receive citizenship in a formal ceremony, you have to um, give that citizenship pledge. Tanya Plibersek's argument is that every Australian school student should learn this and think carefully about what it means. She went on to discuss the nature of patriotism and so on. Now, um, this has been described um, widely as um, uh, everybody should be saying the pledge at school, which is um, uh, not quite, I think, what she says as someone who was raised in the United States and stood awkwardly as the Australian child in the back as everybody pledged allegiance to the flag. And I, I stood up, but I didn't pledge because that would have been weird. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, so, so um, apart from that little personal anecdote, um, uh, Bella, should every Australian student learn that? Um, um, is this a is this a debate we finally need to have? Well, I or do we already a, love Australia I, too much? So I think there's um, the first thing that, that there's two pledges. Then one one mentions God, and she obviously hasn't put that one in because that would just that pe people's heads would have exploded in your yeah. <laughs> Is there an option? Yeah, there's an op there's an option. There's oh, the first okay. option is mentioning God, and the other one isn't. Um, so I think it's all it's it's. It's a great idea, but the children don't know what they're going to be pledging allegiance to because they're not taught anything. So I think it's <laughs> it's it's a wonderful idea, but maybe give them the background first about what they're actually pledging allegiance to. They, they, it's going to be empty words for them um, because the, they're not taught about what their rights, where, what right. They won't even know what rights they're, they're, they're talking about. That's a about, brilliant really. point, Bella, because kids have that annoying habit of saying why. Yeah, well, we, why we, am I we, saying this? What what am I talking about? Yeah. But they're not they're not ever going they, they're not going well, to tell. Can show yeah. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the that's the so problem. Is, that's the problem with all the, of this is that it makes it picture it of Canberra and it makes, Scott it, it makes it all really self conscious. Whereas if if a country is really strong and confident in itself, then um, these beliefs are are held by people without um, some sort of uh, self conscious reminder of them all the time. But if they were taught at school naturally. The, well, the, yeah, the, this it, is what it is. These are the and they would come to they would come to to love their country. Yeah, um, and I think that's I think that's the important thing. Although on the other hand, but, I mean, Tanya I, agrees with you here. So go yeah, on, no, sorry, no, no, no. Well, I I tend to agree with what um, Tanya Plibersek said, at least on Twitter. Um, but I think that um, you know when I was a kid, <laughs> every Monday we stood um, at attention and we saluted the flag and sang the national anthem, and it did me a world of good. I think it's. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's a really good idea. I think, I think, really good I, idea. I think um, that was that was once a week, and the point the point really about doing something like that is to to be grateful and to feel as though you are connected um, to to the country that is that is giving you so much, um, and that you have a responsibility for it. And I think when Tanya Plibersek said um, that Australia Day um, should be about um, what we have in common and about solidarity, I think she's absolutely right. Um, the, the question is, 
you know, whether it necessarily comes loaded with um, a whole bunch of, um, you know, politically contested terms like Australia's democratic rights. Well, okay, what exactly well, does it's only politically about contested it's equality? Yeah. On the, on what the kind of equality are we talking in, about? In, in her speech, it's, it's about what we owe each other as citizens. Um, patriotism like mateship is about solidarity. Um, uh, it was a terrific speech. They can't Good see on her. I, I think she's no. the yeah, right. So, so she was right. The reaction no, from no, the I, left I, is The right. reaction from the left is fantastic because it's exactly what you'd expect. First of all, she mentions patriotism, which is probably the worst thing that she could be mentioning. Yep. Um, because these people are the, 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 the good hearts. They're the anywheres. Yeah. Yes, abso- absolutely. They, and, and they also, and I think they hate the fact that she's talking about schools because they believe that they have one in schools. They don't like the fact that there's someone's actually suggesting something else because they, 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 they own the schools. They yes. own education. Yeah. And the furor against her that came from the left is exactly why the centre left is dying. <laughs> they can't win anywhere in the English-speaking world, and it's precisely because. Even a mainstream figure mm. from the left of the centre-left party, Tanya Plibersek, can't say, I am proud of my yep. country and I think we should raise our children to be proud of it too. Uh, and the, the, the idea that this is somehow offensive, when, when these kids are going to grow up to be the stewards of this very country and its traditions, the idea that they shouldn't feel grateful for receiving them, the idea that they shouldn't feel connected to them and some ownership and responsibility for them, is baffling to me, and I'm sure it was baffling to Tanya, who probably didn't think that she had said anything particularly mm. controversial. I think, no. I think she, she knows, knows what now. she's doing. Yeah. I think she knows what she's doing. This is a very this anodyne is, speech. I would have been surprised. This is a very Maybe anodyne speech, and there is not really anything to object to with it at all, and, and uh, I'm 100% right. But what my concern that should be raised is, again, precisely to your point, that um, national... The, the love of nation, love of um, uh, country people should come organically. It's not a dictate from the shadow education minister and I don't want to hear it from uh, the prime minister. I don't want to hear these sorts of things. I, I actually want us to have an organic love of each other or solidarity with each other, not just a state-driven. And when, when I'm like, well, you know, we should get the, the schools to do this because that's the power you have. We give you the children for... Um, 15 years and we let you play with them. Um, this strikes me as just another way to, you know, pledge loyalty, not as much to other people but to the state as well. But uh, children aren't going to be organically loving their country. They're not born – you're not born loving Australia or born – you're born you, – you grow to love Australia because – in assembly, you see the flag and you see everyone else and you sing the national anthem and you're told about Australian values. Yeah. You have to. So I, I think that they, this is good. I think the prime minister should be talking about it. And I think she should be talking about it. I disagree with you. I think it's not. You're not just born patriotic. You have to. You have to be. Yeah. Told I think the about organic part of be. it is like I think it was. I think it was Burke who said, um, you know, for people to love their country, their country should be lovely. Um, and that's the organic part of it is that if you actually have a good country and you actually pay attention to why it's good, then you will come to love it. But there's no reason why we shouldn't have a school system that in some way, I'm not necessarily saying that this pledge is the exact right wording or, or even that a pledge is the exact, I mean, I, I think singing the national anthem was fine as well. But um, the idea that we shouldn't have a school system that reinforces that in some way, I mean, it would, be, it would actually be very nice for the school system to do something that reinforces what something kids positive. get from home rather than constantly being at war with parents, <laughs> which is how it's set up now. now and something positive to, to, to offset all the, the negative stuff that's going on with a- school. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Well, of course, one of the reasons why the schools can't do this is they're spending all their time teaching the children about climate change, you know, getting the kids to watch videos of David Attenborough, dying polar bears, El Gore, <laughs> climate catastrophe or whatever. And uh, that's an, sort of an extended uh, lead-in to talking about what really has been the, the great uh, conversation of the summer, which is we have had a terrible bushfire season. There's no, no doubt about that. Uh, over 18 million hectares of land has been burnt, nearly 3,000 homes and 34 people tragically have lost their lives. And um, this is, it's been awful. Uh, Australia has had similar seasons before, as we will discuss. But uh, it's worth focusing on the social phenomenon of seeing how the reaction to that was dominated by these discussions of, of climate change. No, it, it is. It was a remarkable summer in that sense, and and as you say, it was a genuinely um, even shocking fire season just for the sheer scale of the fires. And as you say, um, fires are a part of the Australian experience and part of the Australian environment. But this was um, uh, a very very bad one by any any measure. Um, it's been caused the proximate cause, of course, is the combination of a drought since about two thousand and seven and quite a hot start to the summer um uh the fires have or the um uh the the danger has uh, has eased over the last couple of weeks but certainly over christmas it really shaped australian politics um and it really shaped the way australians thought about um i i suspect it actually ch changed how we thought about climate change and the climate change debate um but i think that's worth discussing so um obviously there was um, a lot of criticism of Scott Morrison and leadership and, and so forth. And I think we should skip over that because it's no longer as interesting as it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, but do you, why don't I throw to you first, Andrew? Do you think this changes the climate change debate? Not should it change the climate change debate, but do you think it has? Uh, I think it has somewhat. I, I think that the government was rocked onto its heels a little bit um, by how vociferous the response was and how frankly organised the campaign was to to link um, the bushfire season to climate change and to the Liberals um, sort of one foot in the door, one foot out climate change policy, which is what they've, they've always had because um, their internal politics means that they're constantly trying to assuage two different constituencies. With precisely the opposite view. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and there's, really, there's really no... Um, you know, they're half pregnant on the issue and there's really no other way for it, for them at the moment. Um, but I think that the government sort of had to scramble a little bit in its political response. I mean, obviously, they weren't thinking that this was how it was going to play, given that they had ministers on holidays overseas and things like that. If it, if it had occurred to them that any fire was going to be linked to climate change, then I think they would have been better prepared. So, yes, I think it has forced the, the Liberal Party to at least... Um, play this game in the media that it always plays about trying to assure it's, uh, you know, in a, it's, it, let's, let's face it, it's inner city wealthy electorates that it cares about the issue um, and we might see something concrete come out of that or we might not depending on um, whether Scott Morrison can finesse the issue away or not. Yeah, well, as, a, um, as you say, it was a very organised response. Um, there's, there's no doubt, and I don't think this is a conspiracy theory to say that this is exactly what many of these organisations had prepared for. Uh, we've seen a, um, a, a degree of strategising, which is sort of impressive if you just take take the politics out of it, which is, you know, as, as uh, global warming became climate change and, and then it became a debate about uh, extreme weather events and, and a narrative that there's more extreme weather events to, despite the paucity of evidence to that. 
Um, and, and of course, one of the things that I found remarkable, so that's the activists pushing the line that this is because of climate change. It was a little bit sad to see uh, across the social media um, channels this idea that not only should Scott Morrison be doing something about this, but that he could do something about it straight away. So many times I actually saw that if Australia had have reduced its emissions, we wouldn't have had these bushfires. This idea that, you know, say going back to a point 20 years ago, if we'd done something different, then it would have approximately affected the temperature of the globe in Australia right at the moment. The, the level yeah, I think of... that speaks to a kind of a, a, a almost new, almost new, um, or at least um, rediscovered ruthlessness in this campaign um, that they were willing to use that line mm. um, because everyone knows that however you feel... Um, or whatever you know about the science or however you feel about the political response to it, um, everyone knows that if Australia had reduced its emissions to zero 15 years ago, we would still have bushfires. But there, everyone there knows that. A, the, and their the, ruthlessness about using that line is actually... Yeah, and they accuse um, the deniers of, of ignoring but, science. But there, is, I mean, there is a criticism here. So <laughs> there is a criticism noted. of not just this government, but the previous government and the government before that about the um, failure because of the overriding focus on climate change mitigation. So let's cut emissions to zero or, or, or not. And so we debate that never-endingly. But we don't focus on the thing that we need to focus on, which is adaptation policies. And it has bugged me for um, the better part of two decades that um, we get report after report focusing on things like, well, how are we going to adapt to changing climates, whether it's changing for – whether it's anthropogenic or whether it's just – the natural climate change and we, we're coming um, at coming out of an ice age or, or, or whatever it is um uh but we don't focus on dealing with emergency management we don't focus on those basic adaptation problems so um there is a failure of in fact it's a failure of political leadership here because we are not making our country as robust to natural disasters that um are happening whether more frequently or less frequently but with a significantly greater cost because of rising population, more capital investment, better houses. It just gets – these natural disasters end up getting worse for us over time as we get richer and more populous and we need to focus on adapting to it. There's, the, the Productivity put, Commission put out a report on this in 2013 and it never made a sound because no one cared. Everyone wanted to, one, wanted to debate carbon taxes. But we need to be thinking about emergency management. We need to be thinking about adaptation. And no, it, it's a good point. And but I, I don't only blame the uh, the politicians. I mean, I, I look at the political economy. So first, first of all, uh, you get this reactive uh, BS where everyone's focused on fighting fires, and so suddenly you throw money at the state fire services to have another tanker and another aeroplane and another helicopter. And of course, it wouldn't matter how much water they were dropping on, you know, a wildfire it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever. But it's a highly visible, expensive things you can do. But I contest the idea that it's purely a failure of leadership because, in the context of bushfires, they are blocked from the adaptation. So let's assume a warming globe probably is warming a bit. Let's assume that increases the background risk of bushfires. Would that not be a very good argument for uh, preventative burns, reducing the fuel load, fire breaks, access trails, uh, not locking up land in more and more national and state parks and then, you know, forgetting about it? All of the... Um, allowing people to clear around their houses without having to go through the hoops of native vegetation permits from local councils. Adaptation would actually mean a whole bunch of things that the 
the same green idiots, sorry, um, I know this is looking forward, but anyway, <laughs> sometimes I can't help it. The same green idiots who, who run that ruthless line about this all being about climate change are the same people that won't let you actually do anything to reduce not the incidents but the outcome, the negative outcomes, the catastrophic outcomes of those bushfires. I feel like we've lost, lost knowledge that we used to do this and mm. we stopped doing it and this is what happens. And it's, it's not com- it doesn't seem to be very complicated, land management, isn't it? Just no... Indeed. Knowing that this is going to happen every season and mitigating against it. And, and every year that, that, that knowledge goes out of yeah, the system. Yeah, and it seems like we've lost knowledge. So it's sort of retrograde. I mean, when, when forests were, were managed as an economic resource, the, the same people who managed those forests were also the same ones who over the summer used to take responsibility for fire management. Um, over the winter they mm. take responsibility for preventative measures. Uh, of course, Indigenous knowledge has been pushed aside, um, as we've just talked about uh, Bill Gamage's work on how Aboriginal people manage fire. So it's traditional knowledge of all kinds have mm. been pushed out of the system. But understanding understanding that the role that we have as a society is to manage the environment in which we are. So that is to mitigate against risks, to adapt to known challenges and to, um, uh, to ju- just manage our way through this is actually a major change because so many people in this debate are driven by a vision of what we ought to be doing or a sort of utopian vision of the world as it could be or should be rather than okay well we we have this this is the reality that we have we some of us live in the bush some of us um uh we live in a incredibly um fire prone country how do we how do we deal with that those facts on the ground and and that's just not the way the environmental debate has has happened for the last two decades i think what's happened is that it's the this idea that that this idea that human beings are sort of pestilential and where the pestilence on the earth and the, the, the trees and the grass are the, are the goodies and we're the baddies, so we should let them, just let there's them a, be. There's a, kind of, but there's a kind of tension in, that, the in that, that kind of materialist idea that they have of um, humans as animals is that they want us to, on one hand, accept that we can engineer the entire climate, but they want us to mm. ignore the things that we can engineer more concretely, directly, they they parody that as saying that we want to you know pave the forest so they can't catch on fire, um, but if you if you take this seriously that we are beings capable of manipulating our environment to our advantage, then you know you really ought to start locally, right? That you you, you know the, the environment that is most easily managed is the one that you you yourself live in, um, and so I think there's a real tension there in their thought that hasn't perhaps been taken up. I'm, I'm not sure how you turn it into a political message, but it's they, they want you to accept that the, the, at the macro level, engineering is possible, but to ignore what you can do at the micro level. And it seems to me that it's actually much more likely to be the other way around, mm. that um, it's much more easy, uh, much easier to, to manipulate your environment at the micro level. It might not mm. even be easier, just more likely to to to, um, to, to actually yeah. work, <laughs> yes, <it's actually laughs> um, and that's that's always been the issue. So on climate change mitigation, um, regardless of so, let's say you accept all the science, um, and it was, or just say you say you accept the IPCC's recommendations and predictions and so forth. Um, Scott's getting a phone call as we speak. Um, <laughs> um, if you accept all the IPCC's 
predictions. Regardless, it's just not clear that the world is going to come together and and develop a global climate treaty that materially affects this. And, so and, we have to focus on adaptation. This, this, this is the this is the thing again that the the left with its its rationalist streak um, you would have thought would ta- would have taken up this problem as a game theoretical. Um, well, it's basically a prisoner's dilemma um, that if Australia goes first, we stand to lose. We stand to gain, if you accept, again, accepting everything that the, the IPC says, that we only stand to gain if everyone opts in. But a truly rational actor will try and be the free rider on the system. Um, and that's assuming, right, that all of the parties in the game um, are equal partners, but of course they're not. There are five actors in the global system, more or less, five or six, who really determine global emission levels. And if they don't play the game... And one of them's Australia, right? Or am I... Mm. Or, 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 or I'm not New yeah. Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And if, and if one of, you know, the United States, the European Union, China, Russia, Brazil, doesn't play this game, then the game is moot. And this is not... You know, again, this is the left response to this argument as that's an excuse for doing nothing. Excuse is a loaded word. It's a reason for doing nothing, right? It's it's completely rational for Australia to look well, at well, what well, other actors in the game. I would are just going say it's do. an explanation of the fundamental problem that 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 it's it. You you look at the the world as it is, um, and you identify that it's very unlikely that you're going to come to global political agreement on an issue like this. So then what? And it's that it's that accepting the um, the fundamental reality, and maybe you can challenge that that argument. But if you accept that fundamental reality, then you have to think, then what? And it's adaptation. Come come back to adaptation. And uh, incidentally, the the other part of the narrative uh, was that these this is an unprecedented bushfire season. I mean, that is, that is just complete rubbish. <laughs> I mean, the 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 uh, so eighteen million hectares, which is a lot. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, in 74 or 5, there was over 100 million hectares in Australia affected no. by fire. I mean, what, what part of the political economy this was, it started in Sydney. The, the smoke haze over Sydney, our media is run out of Sydney. And that's when the, when the, uh, the political um, intensity really started to increase. Yeah, and, and around Canberra. And Canberra. Of course yeah, and, the, and then micro the to Canberra. So, so if it had been, um, you know, uh, as so we had bushfires in Victoria, I think it was seven or eight years ago, where it was um, uh, maybe uh, a bit long, where, where the, the ones that were in, um, you know, the, the, the central highlands essentially, yeah. away from the major population centre. I'm not talking about... Um, uh, Black Saturday, uh, they just don't get the coverage. Yep. They don't. If, if 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 it doesn't have the footage, um, then it's just not real. It's not happening. Yeah. So, so you could you could argue also, I think, <laughs> at a more theoretical level, that the sort of future bias of progressivism entails um, forgetting the past, um, mm. de- uh, even mm. its deliberate er- erasure. Um, so and taken to its extreme, you know, with the concept of like year zero or something like that. But there's a, there's a reason for doing it, and that is because. All eyes need to be focused on the future. Um, and so it, it might just be that some of the people driving uh, this particular response um, are just constitutionally incapable of remembering things. Yep. And have no interest in doing so. Uh, one of the other uh, events uh, that's a bit more recent that's been driving, uh, driving media headlines and perhaps has led to the same kind of mass hysteria is uh, coronavirus. 
Speaking of crisis, I don't think I don't think it's hysteria, Scott. I think we're all right. going to. Le- le- okay, let's get the facts. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk the facts and then, I'm, I'm then we'll le- le- leading with right. my view. I'm <laughs> just getting my view. Hey, in you haven't started yeah, building yeah, yeah. a bunker yet. Facts first. Facts, have, facts first. I started right. getting a hospital. Right. My job is to do facts and then we argue, right? Yep. Okay. So the latest numbers on the coronavirus out of China is that there's um, about four and a half thousand people infected with the virus, and there's 106 um, people dead. Of course, as we all know. The center of the epidemic is in um, the city of Wuhan, which is in the Hubei province. Um, Wuhan, along with probably uh, with about a dozen other cities, has have been locked down now as part of the um, Chinese state's attempt to manage the virus. Um, uh, there's actually quite a lot to talk about here because the way that why this is interesting is a totalitarian state meets a um, meets a public health epidemic and and struggles or or succeeds uh, uh, um, depending on your perspective but why don't we ask Andrew what your view is on um, uh, certainly how the Chinese state has responded or um, uh, what's the bigger picture that we should be thinking about well it seems like the the Chinese Communist Party um, as it as it always does has responded just with brute strength Right, so it's just deployed a lot of resources as quickly as it can. It's they're they're throwing up a hospital. once it admitted it happened. Once it once well, and they, and this is this is the thing you know that they their first priorities to control the information. Um, actually, the you know for fans of the show Chernobyl, um, is that the response is actually you know quite similar in that the first thing is well let's control that as a PR problem, then it's brute brute force so they've they've deployed enough people to to build a hospital in six days we saw this with the SARS virus a few years ago as well um so the same the same response they've literally blockaded the roads in and out of affected areas um so it's 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 going to be you know it's not it's not especially a like a scientific tailored response it's it's a, a brute force response at least at Fort the, that the bit. Chernobyl I'll, I'll let you continue to but the Chernobyl parallel is really interesting because um, the Chinese um, internet sensors are now blocking discussions about Chernobyl because on things like the IMDP db page of chernobyl people were having all these really intense discussions about how all these chinese people are having really suddenly intense discussions about how well the russian state dealt with the chernobyl disaster <laughs> obviously talking about um yeah. uh, a, a, a china's response yeah and i think i think and so i th- i think that um you know it's very hard to get a handle on anything that actually happens in china um and so we don't know how well they're doing there are reports that the that this virus is is much more virulent than other um, outbreaks we've seen recently. They're, they're, so, but you don't know how reliable that is because it's based on reporting. Um, there might be um, as many deaths already um, from this as there were in the entire SARS outbreak a few years ago, which means that it's happening much more quickly. But again, it's really hard to know exactly what the Chinese Communist Party is doing about this, which means, of course, it's time to panic. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so, and, so that's, and that's what we're seeing. I mean, so, yeah. so, so private school, some private schools in Australia have just said that any student who's been in China over the summer break is not allowed to come to school for the first two weeks. And given the astronomical fees that their parents are paying, that, <laughs> that must be hell for them, that 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 does strike me as as a, as a sign of of, of panic and uh, 
Chris, before you were saying, what, what's going to happen with Australian universities and the tens yeah, of thousands of Well, students? that's right. So, so again, um, we, we just don't have enough good information, but 4,500 people with 106 deaths, that's not a, um, that's not a remarkably high um, casualty rate, if you will, um, uh, given that thousands of Australians die from the flu every year and tens of thousands of people in the United States and we don't have good data out of China again. But, but to your point, you, you can never trust the data that comes out of these mm. sorts of places for a combination of bureaucratic incompetence and um, deliberate political misleading. And, 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 you know, Andrew, you raised the, uh, the, these big publicity moves like we're going to build a hospital in six days or well, although uh, now they're talking about doing it in two weeks. And in fact, the, um, so the state media was already showing pictures of this hospital, which turns out had been copied off a real estate ad. Um, oh, there's well. a lot. And, 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 and then just doing a little bit. Of, they don't care doing, about getting caught. Like doing that. a they little really bit. Of, no, of course they don't. They don't but care. doing a little bit of research around turns out building a hospital in a um, medical disaster in that space of time is actually not that rare. And NGOs in the Ebola crisis were able to build a similar it's hospital like a in mesh. about three weeks, which is slightly slower. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, I know. But it's because <laughs> when they say we're building a hospital, everyone imagines something like yeah, yeah, the yeah. Alfred Hospital, no, or something like a huge <laughs> brick you building. Tents. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Like big tents. Yeah. Um, but but what is what is hugely problematic is just the way politics in a country like China intervenes on every aspect of um, the management of a disaster or a crisis like this. So, um, for example, one of the more horrifying things that is that Taiwan has been excluded from World Health Organization meetings about the coronavirus because, of course, China doesn't recognize Taiwan. And if China decides to take revenge on the World Health Organization, then, um, well, that's that's the end of the World Health Organization. So the, the idea that you could have um, the protection of political um, ideologies at the expense of um, disaster management, I think, is that that's this that's the scary and the interesting. But that's, part that's, about the, this. that's long-term rationality, though, from the the actors within the the, the Communist Party that controls China, is that. Um, oh, under the, you know, under the assumption that they yeah. themselves don't die, they still want to be in yeah, charge afterwards. Exactly. Of course. So yeah. the ra- the regime the regime doesn't live or die based on. Well, unless this really does turn out to be as, as virulent as claimed, but the regime doesn't live or die based on its response. It, it, it lives or dies over, on, on a much longer time scale. Yeah. Um, and, and, but on that point about the WHO, I mean, and, and about how we don't know what China is doing and about how China's actions, um, as, again, if, if, for, for people interested in climate change as well, we don't know really how their actions affect us. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, it, it's another symbol of how naive um, the Western world has been in its engagement with China um, in thinking that our, the international institutions that were set up largely by the United States are robust enough to deal with an authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian, very large, very powerful country that does not always act, <laughs> to put it lightly, uh, in good faith, mm. um, and so again, the, the 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 Chinese response to this is is worth watching because it's a signal of 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 how basically of how trustworthy we think they are, um, given that we have intermingled our relations over the last twenty years to such an extent. 
Yeah, and the challenge is how do you run a World Health Organization when one of your biggest members is a bad actor on the world stage? And um, uh, no, I think that's a hugely significant point. It is, and we might come back to this in future weeks. Where we'll, well hopefully not, though. To be honest, uh, well, <laughs> well, if if nothing much happens over the next few weeks, I will come. I will make a point of coming back and saying I told you it was a mass hysteria event, and um, but otherwise, I'll be proven wrong. Are we allowed to say we told you so if it's not? I am. <laughs> standing on a pile of dead bodies going, I told you so, Scott. <laughs> it was all worth it just to prove Scott wrong. That's all right. <laughs> Finally, a win. <laughs> uh, you are, of course, listening to Looking Forward, a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. Don't forget to join or donate if you haven't already. Go to ipa.org.au. We have come to that part of the show, our books and culture segment, where our wonderful panellists tell us what they've been reading or watching or listening to, in this case, over the summer. Um, who would like to kick us off? I'll, I'll start um, with the wildly overpraised Fleischman is in Trouble um, by uh, someone called uh, Taffy Brodessa Ackner. She, she is a staff writer for the New York Times. Um, it's really... Shock. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I won't explain why I read it, but it's, it's, it's the fashionable, it's the it book of 2019 and lots of people were praising it, so... Um, what they call middle brow uh, literature. It is middle brow literature. It's a portrait of a marriage in New York. I think York. middle so brow is an underrated brow. <laughs> 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 I'm going to talk about a middle brow right. film well, later. Just, be, just, just bear with me. So it's a portrait of marriage it's set in New York. Um, it's not very remarkable. Um, I did finish it, but um, it just... I was reminded of it. So I only read it like two weeks ago. <laughs> I can't remember any of the plot whatsoever. <laughs> um, they're getting a divorce, I think. It's really unclear. Um, but it just really struck me how New York – this is an online discussion that's been going around over the last couple of days. Um, New York just absolutely dominates literature. And people who are staff writers for the New York Times um, or the New York Magazine, or they also dominate what we view as – middle-brow, high-brow literature. They live in Brooklyn. She lives in Brooklyn, turns out. So as I'm reading mm. this discussion, I'm checking against her profile. Oh, my God, that's the same thing. Um, and and it's just it's just not interesting. And, it's, uh, and I've read a few of these sort of it novels that have been going around over the last couple of years because I'm trying to read more fiction. Um, and it just that they they just don't land because they've got nothing interesting to say there. Authors have no experience that is unique. If it was the first writer from Brooklyn uh, who lived uh, who, yeah. who set their story in New York, then maybe it would be interesting. But you know, we know what New York is. We see it in every movie and every novel. Um, anyway, so that's my. They're, they're scared of this idea of cultural appropriation now that they can't. Well, you can't really pretend to be anything else so you have to write. well yeah look at look that that there, there could be something to that but i'd also i don't I, i'm not that excited by someone who goes and pretends to be um from a different culture i'm not i'm very supportive of cultural appropriation but i don't think that's that's the solution the solution is to get people who've done more interesting things to write books about yeah. what they've yeah, done. They haven't had an interesting exactly. life. No, no, just, like, like, just, just do more interesting stuff. Adult, adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody's been told, write about yourself. Yeah. And turns out everybody lives in yeah, Brooklyn. Write right, yeah, <laughs> right, right, what, right what you know. Well, comfortable middle class <laughs> existence <laughs> it is. <laughs> no, like, and, and I'm disappointed with my life and I'm not that, and my marriage isn't yeah, going well. It's, like, it's, okay. It's sort of history, <laughs> history is another field where this has just been, it's just been overrun by this idea that we should focus on the minutiae of. Uh, suburban life. Now, I am 
a suburbanite. I love the suburbs. I actually will defend them positively. But um, we've we've sort of gone from telling a story about um, big events and the people who drive them to let's have. Uh, and I'm thinking about. I saw. Over the holidays, I saw Come From Away, which is this play about mm. planes that were diverted to Newfoundland on September 11th. Oh, yeah, yeah, And everybody and, was very welcoming. And, and, and everyone was very yeah, welcoming. It's, yeah. a, it's a nice story about how nice Canadians are, which is actually true if you go to Canada. They really are very, <laughs> they are very pleasant people. Um, uh, but, pleasant race. But, but what I was struck by was like there's maybe two mentions in the whole thing about 9-11 mm. and no mention of all the people who died and all I could think was the most interesting thing that happened on September 11 was that a lot of people died in a terrorist attack not that a plane got diverted and a Canadian woman had to look after a monkey or a cat <laughs> that had syphilis or something <laughs> which is actually like a subplot in the play and I was like can we tr I mean it's, it, there's a sense in which reducing the great scope of human life to abandon animals on cages on planes that is obscene, frankly, um, and, and Marxist, of course, but... Separate <laughs> point. Always, <laughs> it's always Wait, about Marx. Marxism. Well, is there a contrast in the film that you wanted to talk uh, about? So, yes, and so I wanted to talk about... As long as you're on a roll, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, well, well, I'm, well, I'm, well, I'm ranting. The, the cultural segment is where I shine, you know. It's like <laughs> the... Um, no, no, I, was, I, I watched over, the, over the, the holidays, I watched a movie that when it came out, it was touted as like a big award mm. season mm. movie, but has ended up being overlooked as nominated in one technical category at the, the Oscars. And this is a movie called Ad Astra by uh, James Gray. Did you watch it on a plane? No, no. Because I, I did... Oh, I okay. watched it on a plane as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and well, yeah, we're, and we're all movies. I, I wish I, uh, yeah, I wish I'd seen it in the in the cinema because it's a beautiful film. Mm. Um, and it's called Ad Astra because uh, it's about Brad Pitt plays an astronaut who whose father is a real hero of space exploration, and he gets given this mission to go. They tell him we thought you know the story is that his father is this hero because he was lost in this this great mission to go out to the outer reaches of the solar system. Um, in the search for, for, for life. Uh, and it, he gets told, Brad Pitt gets told, no, your father is still out there. And the ship that he was in control of is now deteriorating rapidly and causing these, these problems. And we need to find him. And we need you to go and find him, basically. Um, and so it sets up this, uh, you know, it's a kind of father-son dynamic. It's kind of classic uh, American theme in particular. But what's really interesting about this movie particularly in contrast to what I was just saying, is that um, not only does it focus on the people who are actually involved, but... Um, but <laughs> it's just going on in the background, but it's but a little that it story was about but, but that it was misunderstood <laughs> as being only about the relationship with this father and son, where it was actually about um, Brad Pitt trying to emulate his father. And at the end of the film, what he learns is that his father is a is a failure yep. and that his life's work was stupid. And this is all symbolised in the movie by um, his father is on this epic search for life in the solar system and ignores his own family and mm. abandons his son. That's the fundamental irony in it. And the symbol is that he's gone out to the outer reaches of the solar system, away from the sun, away from the truth. And the end of the film... Look, it's not a spoiler. But anyway, Brad Pitt has no, to make... No, that's a big spoiler alert, uh, mate. But anyway, that's fine. That's Brad Pitt... No, no, no. You, anyway, Brad Pitt makes his way back to Earth um, and reconnects with 
his estranged wife. Mm. And the last word is he's, he sends a, an audio text and he says, submit, submit. He submits the message, but the message is submit to your life here, the real things, the things that actually matter. And this is a bizarre message to smuggle into a Hollywood movie that um, essentially it's not just there's no place like home, um, but home is actually where the real value is. And this entire progressive scientific mission of going out into the universe to try and understand it just takes you away from things that actually matter. That's so true, but I can make a contrary argument. I'm not going to try not to spoil it too much. Or Sorry, it's not necessarily contradictory, but it's... I've already um, spoiled it. Uh, so his father's actually going out there to find God. And the discovery is that there is no God in that sense. Um, so come back and be with your family. So the search for intelligent, extraterrestrial intelligence is actually is, a search is, for a God in the Father's. Anyway, we can we can debate the the higher level themes, but I, I no, really no, no, like yeah. this movie. He's on the wrong track um, though because he's going away from the sure, sure. Um That's uh, an awesome reading, Andrew. <laughs> <I must say. laughs> um, what I really enjoyed about that film, actually, just it has. So it's of a genre of science fiction of sad people in science fiction. So sad people in space, sad people in um, strange alien wildernesses, um, uh, which which I just really enjoy. This sort of adult science fiction annihilation, Interstellar, um, uh, uh, th- those sort of movies that are coming out at the moment. They're great. They're great fun. Um, but I just really love the world building in it. There's so many ideas in that movie that you just want to spend more time with. That they move over quite quickly. And unlike so much of what you see at the cinemas. Um, uh, that, that you, you can imagine multiple stories existing in that world. Yeah, and that's um, cle- cleverly... Because they go to the moon and the Mars and they've got these complex political economies and complex diplomatic... Yeah. And, and, and it's, it, steals, it steals the structure of Apocalypse Now, which itself is based on Heart of Darkness, which is the idea that explorers go looking for something and basically get lost yep. in the darkness. And they get madder and madder. And they go time. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that's uh, – and it's, it's a good frame for a story because he goes, you know, episode to episode, yeah. world, I, place I, to place. I do have to point out that the physics is rubbish. <laughs> like you, you just can't oh, – oh, there's a ship over there. I'll just go over and, and help them. When you're halfway between two oh, yeah. planets. And, and the thir- and the, like, you know, the, swimming in space. Yeah. Like I mean, you just the, you the know, third, veer the third over. Act, you know, the, third, the third act, people do things for no reason. Yeah, 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 right. so, so, yeah but, but the, the first half is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. At the <laughs> symbolic <laughs> level, it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. No, no, great. No, no, beautiful. Um, I'm actually going to pass on my pick because Bella is going to talk about a book and a person uh, that the uh, we dearly love at the IPA. Um, and uh, I'd rather build on that for the final segment of this show. So, yes, um, this is highbrow, I suppose. So, um, this, so that the, the sad passing of Sir Roger Scruton on the 12th of January this year. Um, so this is a book that I have on my desk. It's not one that, I'm, that I read over summer, but it, it's one that I refer to a lot. It's the um, uses of pessimism. Um, and actually everything that we, we've been talking about today um, has... He, he, dis- he explored in his various fallacies. Each chapter deals with a fallacy. So utopian fallacy, planning fallacy, zero-sum fallacy, the born-free fallacy, which is obviously underpins the modern education idea of education ruins children. They're born absolutely perfectly. Um, so that's a book that, that I think is very relevant. Now, he, it was 20 years ago, but um, it's really set this idea of, you know, try, uh, of... That the section of society trying to create a, a world that, with with a with what he calls a unscrupulous optimism, 
um, a, a perfect world, um, whereas we know it's impossible and we have what, we, what he calls a scrupulous optimism. We're a bit more... Um, we look at we look at the, the pros and cons. So anyway, that's that's what I that's the book that he. I mean, he wrote what was it fifty fifty books I think in his and two yeah, one operetta 40, and 40 two plays yeah. and I mean he was a Renaissance man. It was a, it was a huge loss. It's irreplaceable. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the idea of a conservative philosopher. Um, they're vanishing. Yeah, who was more recognised? Who was more yeah. recognised everywhere else? But of course, the the land of his yeah. birth. And, and the thing that makes Scruton. Um, he, he, what separates him from almost everyone else who's ever written about conservatism is that he was a philosopher first. Um, so his his work um, starts out in aesthetics, um, and he 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 has developed he developed over the period of his life um, his own brand of a kind of um, idealist philosophy that is very heavily influenced by by the Germans and not so much um, by the. Um, the, the analytic tradition of which he's with which he's most associated, and I think the the loss. I mean, the loss for conservatism is his remarkable erudition, mm. but also that conservatism um, in the last, oh, since the Second World War, has had a has been unfortunately uh, dominated by by journalists, um, and and that's not to say that that these people have all been wrong or bad, but. It's very rare um, to have a figure like Scruton with that erudition who comes mm. to conservatism through a philosophical outlook. And there's, so when, if you only read his, his political books, and they're, they're, they're obviously worth reading, but the worldview that he describes in them is rooted in a much deeper... Uh, uh, many mu much deeper philosophical commitments, um, well, he sort of and that's what we've metaphysics, and, and 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 he's a metaphysician as well, really, because he's. I mean, you know, he never talks about he talks about God, but not in a directly. Well, and so the only the only criticism that I would I would level at, at, at Scruton, and this is the thing that in the academic responses to his political work that tends to come through, is that there's an ambiguity about whether Scruton thinks that the conserv a conservative worldview ultimately um, uh, comes down to a metaphysical commitment, say, to belief in God of some description or, or you know, like a platonic idea of... But some kind of metaphysical um, idea or whether, um, or whether these are just constructs. Right? Well, I think his metaphysical idea was that beauty, if you, if you pursue beauty, you, you find God. Yeah, and, 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 do, you mind, do you mind explaining that just a bit? Bit more so, deeply. So, well, not, sorry, not so deeply. Actually, uh, yeah. let me have a stab at it because you can tell me whether I'm on the wrong tram. But this is the alternative conservative tradition, if you like, is is more sentimentalist. It's 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 more about uh, conservatism's a, a disposition. It's about how we feel about each other and the and the little platoons of which we are a part. You know, I um, I recognise you as a fellow human uh, through our moral sentiments. Uh, uh, whereas Scruton was actually much more in, in a continental tradition where there was but, something bigger at play. There's also, there's also another one that I think he Tell reacts me if I'm wrong, against. But, there's yeah. also another one that I think he reacts against, which is sort of what I'm going to call as conservative rationalism, which is that there's a prudential claim for conservative 
policy that um, uh, we don't uh, the, a sort of Hayekian conservative model where we don't know um, uh, why we have the institutions we have, so therefore we should pr only prudentially change them, or um, and we should maintain them if we've you know it, certainly if we haven't got so, any better ideas. And, and so the, the fault line in in conservatism as political philosophy is exactly that that there's a kind of empiricist conservatism. Um, and that's where it intermingles with with classical liberalism in that um, you have this, as you say, a prudential, pragmatic concern for um, for managing change with certain sort of a certain kind of analysis of change that usually starts from the status quo. And that's where you see a kind of overlap between someone like Michael Oakeshott uh, and someone like um, some much more radical like James Buchanan, right, who talks a lot about the status quo as well. Chris, you put me onto that. Um, and, but on the other hand, there is, an, uh, there is a, a branch of conservatism and the argument is from, from that branch is that theirs is the true conservatism because it's the only thing that can actually uh, give you a reason. Not, so the, the, the empirical one kind of leads to progress but slower. Right. Yep. Whereas a true conservative alternative to progressivism, so the argument Standing goes, athwart history yelling slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas the alternative would actually be to have some reason to, to, to recognise and preserve things that are unchanging or true in a metaphysical sense. And the argument that some people have made about Scruton is that it's not clear, perhaps because he straddles to the continental and analytic traditions, it's not clear whether he thinks that there really are fixed points in in the you know in the in the universe in the metaphysical universe, or whether he just thinks um, that these are constructs within an idealist frame. And I think the point about beauty is that, and I think this is where Scruton ended up in his life after he became religious, was that if you look at the world closely enough, you will see things that really are true, um, and that's. I think that's the, the connection, but um, Scruton's work is, is extremely rich and uh, I think underappreciated for its rich, richness. Yeah, it will, t it will take years to unpack and, uh, and his political stuff was great too. His book on, um, on the postmodern writers, which he was able to read mostly in the original French, uh, mm. republished as Fools, Frauds and Firebrands, which I coincidentally reviewed uh, for the IPA's magazine. It's... It, it's uh, terrific at unpacking postmodernism, but by someone who actually understands mm. the philosophical traditions on which it was growing, and he could make a distinction between someone like Foucault, who did occasionally have some things to say that were useful and and true within their tradition, as opposed to what he called the Parisian nonsense machine. Once you get into Derrida and and Lacan and Deloitte and Guattari and all these guys who uh, were not just breaking up paradigms, but were just talking gibberish essentially he could actually make those distinctions with some authorities so yeah which is something that we should all try to do yeah as opposed to saying <laughs> as postmodernism is rubbish someone, as someone who will defend Foucault not obviously 100% but um, Foucault does add value occasionally so um, no thank you Bella and Andrew for reflecting on uh, the great Sir Roger Scruton, who was a guest of the IPA, uh, Chris. Oh, that's a great question. That I should have 2014. 2014. I, I travelled around a lot with him, and it was a real pleasure. To, I, I can to only report that I had a beer with him, but that was that's enough. a pretty good anecdote by itself. That yeah, to be yeah, fair. Had, a, had, a, had a beer with. Uh, I took a lot of taxis after that function. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. So you have been listening to Looking Forward, the uh, the first show back. Uh, this is a podcast of the Institute of Public Affairs. 
Uh, if you want to support our research, this podcast, or indeed our other great digital products, please go to ipa.org.au, join or donate. I'd like to thank our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg, Thanks, Scott. Dr Bella Debrera, and Andrew Bushnell. Thank you. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.